an old friend of mine named Mary Day, one of my heroes of the faith. She imparted some wisdom to me, words which are attributed to, to Ronald Reagan, I believe. You've probably heard, heard this. There is no limit to the amount of good you can do if you don't care who gets the credit. I'll say that again. There is no limit to the amount of good you can do if you don't care who gets the credit. Credit is a big deal. We place a lot of emphasis on credit. Well, why is that? Well, whether it be in the academic world, in terms of academic writing, or in any other arena of the professional world, or really in the relational world, credit means influence. Who has the influence? Who, who gets the credit? And what, what does this have to do with Acts chapter 8? What does this have to do with the origins of the early church? And, and what about the church now? Credit and authority are connected to both the heart of this chapter and really to the very hearts of its hearers, and that's us. So it begins. We, we read last time about Stephen, the first deacon. Stephen has been murdered. Murdered, um, a mob murder, a stoning and it's witnessed by Saul, and as Acts chapter 8 opens up, we see that Saul approves of putting Stephen to death. And on that day, a great persecution begins against the church in Jerusalem, and, and they're, they're all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. The apostles are standing firm and standing fast there in that danger zone. Some devout men, they bury Stephen, and they mourn loudly for him. They grieve, and while this is going on, Saul begins ravaging the church, and he enters house after house, and he drags away men and women and puts them into prison. And we read, Therefore, those who had been scattered, they go through places preaching the word. Stephen is, is murdered, he's dead, he's buried, and the church grieves and the church mourns. And on the very day of Stephen's murder, persecution against the church begins. We've seen some good days for the church. We've seen the origins of the church, the beginnings, the, the Holy Spirit bringing an outpouring, and we see lots going on, and the, and the numbers are growing, and great things are happening. We've seen some... Some sin begin to break out in, in, in areas with Ananias and Sapphira and some different things. And now, persecution. Saul approves of Stephen's murder, and he begins his assault on the church. Saul goes after believers, men and women, and he drags them away to prison. It doesn't sound like it's simply an escort, does it? It's the phrase you can either, you can take the easy way or the hard way. Personally, I prefer you take the hard way. It's almost that's what he's saying. I'm going to drag you to prison. The church scatters from Jerusalem during this persecution throughout Judea and Samaria. The church scatters, and, and this is what's interesting, because that's not by accident. 
just before Jesus' ascension to heaven in Acts chapter 1, if we were to flip all the way back to the beginning of our time in Acts, Jesus shared some words with the apostles. He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and as far as the remotest part of the earth. Those who are scattered, they are able to preach, and they're able to preach confidently because nothing is happening outside of the will of God, outside of the sight of God. Things happen in life, and we are seeing a collective thing happen to the early church. So often, and we've all said, why did God allow? Why? Don't we see, this in, we see this in Scripture? We shouldn't be surprised when bad things happen. Philip goes down, and he's able to go confidently down to one of the cities in Samaria, and he begins pro- proclaiming Christ. And this is Philip the Evangelist. This is the second person called to serve the church as a deacon. If we were to flip back to Acts chapter 6 and we see those six names of the ones who were called out to be deacons, Philip is the second one. And, and church history notates him, names him as Philip the Evangelist. And the crowds are paying attention with one mind to what is being said by Philip. And they're hearing and they're watching the signs which he is performing. For in the case of many... They have unclean spirits, and the spirits are coming out of these people, and they're shouting with a loud voice, and many who have been paralyzed or they're limping on crutches, they're being healed. And see, Jesus himself told his disciples during the Last Supper in John 14, he said, Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. And they've seen Jesus at work. And they will do even greater things, Jesus says, than these, because I'm going to the Father. So Philip is following Jesus' last words to the letter. There's preaching, there's there's preaching, there's signs and wonders, and the crowd is giving Philip its undivided attention. There's healings from unclean spirits, and those who have been paralyzed or are crippled, they're being healed. We are seeing come to pass what Jesus told the disciples in Matthew chapter 10. He, He said, as you go, he's outfitting the disciples to go. He says, as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those with leprosy, cast out demons. The Lord is giving them confidence. And we're seeing the Holy Spirit at work through Philip. And we look there at verse 8. There is much rejoicing in that city. That's one verse. There is much rejoicing in that city. I I use the New American Standard. Some of you may use the NIV. It reads, great joy in that city. Great joy. And And that one small verse says a great deal. The presence of the Lord is made manifest in that city, and there is great joy. It's a question. The presence of the Lord is here. Do we... Do we feel that same joy? That same sense of expectation? Well, there's a man named Simon. 
And he has previously, he had, he had been practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, and he's claiming to be someone great. And all the people, from small to great, from the least to the greatest, they're paying attention to Simon. And they're saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. He's kind of a rock star. And they're paying attention to him. They have been doing that because for a long time he has astounded them with his magic arts. Simon. Simon the magician or Simon Magus. Jesus himself warned of persons like Simon. And in Matthew 24, Jesus said, For false messiahs and false prophets will arise and will provide great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the most devout. Simon is claiming to be someone great. Simon is preaching about himself. He is astounding his audiences. And they have been paying attention to Simon. But... Anytime you see that word in Scripture, you've got to watch what's coming. Verse 12, But when they believed Philip as he was preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were being baptized. Wow. Philip is preaching about Jesus and the kingdom of God. Philip would be preaching about Jesus as the entrance to the kingdom of heaven. Jesus' life, his death, which defeats sin, his resurrection, which points to eternal life, his ascension, which points to his return. What is happening? Well, men, men and women are believing what Philip is saying. They're entrusting their faith in what he is sharing. The Holy Spirit's at work, and they are being saved from their sins. Amen! And as a result of their salvation, they are following Jesus' example of baptism as a witness to Jesus' saving work. There's salvation, and then there's baptism. Baptism doesn't save. Jesus saves. And and Philip is not claiming the credit for for himself. Look at 13. (laughs) Now even Simon himself believed. Amen. This, This magician... And after being baptized, Simon continued on with Philip, and and as he is observing these signs and miracles taking place, Simon is repeatedly amazed. Simon's the one being amazed. He he believed, he was baptized, and he's going on with Philip. And then, something curious happens. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they would receive the Holy Spirit, that these new believers would receive the Holy Spirit. And then 16, a very odd verse. For he, the Holy Spirit, had not yet fallen upon any of them. These new believers had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Well, this is a bit confusing. 
Don't we read in Ephesians 1 that the Holy Spirit indwells the believer at the moment of salvation? Yes. So what gives? Well, if we think about what we've read in Acts thus far, we've seen the Holy Spirit descend and work. Acts 2, the apostles, the early church, and all that has happened in Jerusalem. An outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus has commanded the disciples to go and preach in Samaria, and so Philip is being obedient. However, the apostles dispatch Peter and John to Samaria in order to impart the Holy Spirit to this group of new believers, in essence, to incorporate them into the church. This is the very beginning of the church. You've got, you've got that early, you've got that group there in Acts chapter 2 and following, and they begin to grow, but this is the first time we've seen a church outside of Jerusalem. And so to recognize them as a part of that, Peter and John are dispatched to go. To anoint them into the greater body of Christ. It's a huge moment in in the history of the body of Christ. The Lord has given these apostles this ability to, to impart the Spirit that way where the Lord didn't give Philip, the evangelist, this ability. And this is why. See, the Christian faith is one of fellowship and accountability. Do you know that? When, when we talk about church membership, when I've had conversations about church membership, what I share is the following. It's a marriage. The individual marries into the church, and the the church marries into the individual, and we belong to one another. We are accountable to one another. We're not to live isolated lives. And how we read Scripture, how how our, our fellowship as well as our fellowship. See, the Christian faith is one of fellowship and accountability. There's to be order in the church. That the Lord has laid out in His Word directions for the church and its shepherds. We we saw earlier in Peter's writings to the early church that that misunderstandings of doctrine can occur. And there are those who would rise up and take advantage of the misunderstandings of believers and lead them astray. Fellowship and accountability matters. The apostles begin to lay their hands on these new believers. And they're receiving the Holy Spirit. And Simon, he's watching, and he sees that the Spirit is given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, and he offers these apostles. He offers Peter and John money. And he's saying, give me, give this authority to me as well. Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Simon, you know, money talks. <laughs> money talks. And, and, and how do you get something? Well, you offer money. And as a little boy, I mean, baseball cards or comic books, well, if a trade stalls, you, you begin to add some cash value to it. Well, Peter says to Simon, may your silver perish with you. Wow. Because you thought you could acquire the gift of God with money. 
The Spirit does what the Spirit does. Man can't control the Spirit. Man can't lease or rent the Spirit. And, and you know, we would never attempt that. We'd, we'd never attempt that. But, does money ever enter the discussion of spiritual work? How does money influence the church? I mean, I mean money <laughs> is a part of how we function. It's a part of the equation. We're called to, to tithe our blessings back to God because He is the giver of all things. And all blessings flow from Him. But, in, in our misunderstandings of money and the movement of the Holy Spirit, do we ever fall prey to thoughts like, if I give more or less, will God love me more or less? Here's a scenario. I've had colleagues who've dealt with disgruntled church members, ones who've stopped tithing because they're in a snit with one of the pastors. Or they don't agree with one of the programs, maybe. So they pull their tithe. And what they don't understand is this. They're robbing God. And ultimately, they're hurting themselves and their witness. So Peter tells Simon, you have no part or share in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intention of your heart will be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of unrighteousness. The gall of bitterness and in the bondage of unrighteousness. Well, Simon answers, Pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. He, he's, he's understandably frightened, and it sounds like there's repentance there. Peter says, Your heart is not right before God. You are in the gall of of bitterness. You are in the bondage of unrighteousness. Therefore, repent of this wickedness. Pray to the Lord that the intention of your heart will be forgiven you. Simon has, has believed. Simon has been baptized. But see, there's more to it. I would say use the phrase, beyond belief. That there's more to it than belief. But let me explain that. It's that belief can have different levels of understanding or hearing. Sometimes we hear or we understand not the full picture of what belief is. You see, if you were to flip over to the book of James you would read that even the demons believe. Even the demons believe. 
we're talking about a posture of the heart. You see, salvation implies lordship of Jesus. That Jesus gets the credit for being in charge. That Jesus is to have the authority. And, and, and here's the problem. Here's the problem for Simon, which really is, at the end of the day, the problem for us. Simon desires authority. Simon wants to be in charge. Simon wants the credit. And if Simon has the power of the Spirit, even if he buys it, Simon will have influence. Simon will have authority. Can we relate? The big idea of, of, this, of this story in Acts, money is a part of it, but you see, it's a whole lot more than money. It's about authority. Simon wants authority, but what Simon has, though, according to Peter, is bitterness and unrighteousness. And it's a vicious circle. One feeds the other. The bitterness feeds the unrighteousness, which feeds the bitterness, which in turn feeds the unrighteousness. It's reciprocal <laughs> aggravation. The greater the bitterness, the greater the unrighteousness, and vice versa. The one who gets the credit is the one whom has the authority. And the one who has authority is the one whom has influence. And again, at the end of the day, this speaks to the heart of each one of us. It's not just a first century story about money. This speaks to the hearts of us, our bitter, unrighteous, sinful hearts. Even in our belief in Jesus, even if we were baptized years ago, will we allow Jesus to claim the credit of being Lord? Will you and I allow him to have his rightful authority in our lives, over our lives? You see, Jesus has authority. When, when Jesus went to the cross and defeated your sin and mine. God the Father, according to Philippians chapter 2, God the Father gave Jesus a name above every other name. Amen. Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus has authority. Will you and I give him the credit of having that authority? Will you and I allow Jesus that authority?